Hey guys, I'm your host Rebecca. And I'm your co-host Emily. And this is Gory Time. So shall we just jump straight in? Yes. So, in 2007, a man called Mick Philpott appeared on The Jeremy Kyle Show. For anyone that doesn't know about The Jeremy Kyle Show, it's kind of a mix between Dr. Phil and The Jerry Springer Show. Both of which I loved. Do you know what? I have not seen either. (laughs) What? (laughs) I mean, I've, I've seen clips of Dr. Phil ones, but not not like a lot my mum and I would compulsively watch the Jerry Springer show really? for hours yes hours and hours like I've heard of it it's just never been something I've thought it was basically rednecks fighting over horrendous men and it gave (laughs) me so much joy it does sound it does sound entertaining it's great (laughs) and so I used to record the Jeremy Kyle show while I was at school come home and watch it no way. and my dad was like oh it's so much trash and then he'd just sit and compulsively watch it <laughs> with him. Like, um, but he appeared in the show because he his wife Maraid and his girlfriend Lisa were living together as a sort of thruple in a three bed house with his 15 children cheese and both women were pregnant oh so yeah my god that's like that's insane mm-hmm. he had 17 children in total to five different women oh. and and all in the same house as well no so some of the children would come and go um, I know that some of the children's mums were not keen on the children staying with Mick, so cool. but I will get back to that. So to get private time with his partners, he would have this caravan outside and each woman would go on a like rotating night. So Monday Lisa would be with him, Tuesday Marie would be with him, Wednesday Lisa would be with him. He never slept in the house, he only slept oh. in the caravan. That's odd. Yep. So <laughs> Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. It'd be cold as well. So Marie was just nineteen when she married forty four year old Mick. And Lisa was her bridesmaid at their wedding was just 17 and pregnant with another man's child. I can see myself getting confused. So? (laughs) Yes, definitely. If you get confused at any point, let me know. I'll try and clear it up. I have been head deep in this whole family's drama and gossip. 
So you would maybe assume that him having two, as he would call them, wives, he'd be a bit of a Casanova. A bit of a handsome gentleman. (laughs) Oh, he was not. (laughs) Dirty for a little bit. He was this balding man with a handlebar moustache. Quite Hulk Hogan. (laughs) <laughs> without the money the teeth or you know anything that anyone might find attractive about Hulk Hogan and Mick didn't work both of the women worked and would give their money straight to Mick when it came in but he claimed £25,000 a year in benefits oh. for the children and you bet yeah. the media latched onto this. Jerry McHale was not no. a fan of people on benefits. <laughs> but the Jeremy Kyle show wasn't the only time that Mick Philpott was on TV. He appeared in a 2008 documentary with a former MP, Anne Widdicombe. And he was labelled shameless Mick after demanding a bigger house while claiming at that time... £40,000 a year in benefits for himself, his two partners and what is their collective 11 children. So while on the show he was very confrontational with Anna Widdicombe. I watched it and he comes towards her very aggressively and he, she actually thinks he's going to hit her. On TV. While it's being filmed. In 2012, Lisa left Mick and Marie. She took their four children and they had arguments over custody, which ended up in a custody battle. And on the 11th of May of 2012, they were to have a custody hearing. But this would not go to plan. Mick, Marie, and six of the children would not turn up to this custody hearing. So it's early summer in 2014 at 18 Victory Road. The early morning silence was interrupted by shouts for help and fire engine sirens in the distance. Neighbours look out their window and they are shocked to see their neighbours, Mick and Marie's home up in flames. Mick is shouting for help. Help me, my babies are trapped inside while still on the phone to emergency services. The kids were upstairs asleep. The parents were asleep in the conservatory. Neighbours rush down to help even try and enter the homes themselves because six little children are still inside. But the home had reached temperatures of up to 500 degrees. Firefighters turn up and they try and rescue the children. All but one of their babies had already died inside the house. One of their children, actually Marie's from a previous relationship, Dwayne, who had been the oldest at 13, had survived and was immediately taken to intensive care. Unfortunately, 10-year-old Jade, 9-year-old John... Eight-year-old Jack, six-year-old Jesse, and little Jaden, who's just five years old, had all died of smoke inhalation. And I think it's really important to tell you a little about the kids. So Jade was really, really smart, and everyone at her school just loved her. John was polite, and he was always so smiley and cheerful. Jack was the quietest one in the family, which I'm sure was hard to find in such a full house. But he was just so lovely to be around. Jesse, in contrast, was loud and such a little character. Jaden, 
He was Suki. He was the baby of a family and just loved cuddles from family and friends. Dwayne was put on a ventilator, but he unfortunately died in the ICU three days later when his parents switched off his life support. Dwayne, who was charming and caring, was always a protector for his little brothers and sister, but he couldn't protect them from this, or even himself. The next day, the parents held a press conference. They thanked the neighbours, the emergency services who tried to save their babies, and they thanked the police. So through the investigation, police and fire investigators discovered that this fire was not a horrible accident. It was arson. They found petrol on the carpet at the front door. When police questioned Mick and Murray about who the hell would have done this, they can only come up with one name. The woman who had been threatening them, who said she'd get her family involved, Lisa Willis. But the next day, Lisa Willis was released. Police had done their questioning and they didn't have enough to charge her. But their investigation was going in a different direction. They found remnants of petrol and a glove in the garden in the home. They also found petrol in mixed clothes. So, let me give you a little bit of history on Mick Philpott. In 1978, 17-year-old Kim Hill lay in bed drifting in and out of sleep when 21-year-old Philpott snuck into her room and stabbed her 12 times and then turned the knife on her mother, Shirley. You see... Kim had wanted to leave Mick, but Mick didn't want Kim to leave. He was soon convicted of attempted murder and grievous bodily harm, which he got seven years for. The judge warning that he was a dangerous man. Wait, wait, so he fully just killed someone? No, he he stabbed her 12 times, but she didn't die? She didn't die. And he's a dangerous man? Like, no shit. (laughs) Is that it? She went, I'm not sure about this relationship. Maybe let's not continue this. And he went, hmm, okay, stab, stab, stab. And and then the mum walks in going, don't hurt my baby. And he goes, hmm, no, stab, stab, stab. And and all she can say, oh, the judge. Why did I think it was she? All the judge can all say the judge- is that he's dangerous. Yeah, it's a dangerous man, which I think the, you know, conviction for attempted murder and grievous <laughs> bodily harm would say, but apparently not. But boy, was the judge right. The reason Kim had wanted to leave Mick was because he repeatedly beat her. He once broke her arm. Another time, he dislocated her knee with a sledgehammer. He was sure she was having affairs, so he would leave his army post to come back and check on her. He controlled her, and when she would not give in, he would take it out on her with violence. When he left prison, he met his first wife, who he would beat throughout their relationship. But she knew his history, she knew what he was capable of and what he had done. So she never went to police. She knew she couldn't leave him, so she just stayed. They had three kids together, and she just prayed that one day he would leave her. And this day came when 40-something-year-old Mick ran off with a 16-year-old girl called Heather Keogh. Ooh? Yeah. 16? 
That's really, really disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Heather would later describe Philpaw as sometimes charming, but always dominating. Always in control. He wanted to remove his three kids from from their mother and move in with him and Heather. This plan would fail. He had two kids with Heather, and while they were together, she suffered physical and sexual violence, threats, emotional abuse, and was constantly under his control. When she did manage to leave him, the kids remained with him for six months because he would not let Heather near them. After she managed to get the courts involved, her kids came to live with her. But after this, he would report her to social services with fake allegations and try and undermine her relationship with her kids. In 1991, McPhillipot received a two-year conditional discharge for assaulting, occasioning, for... In 1991, he received two-year conditional discharge for assault occasioning actual bodily harm. Harm? Harm. After headbutting a colleague. As you do. (laughs) You know, people get on your nerves. Boof. So there's an allegation of Mick raping a woman soon after this. But I found this in one source and I cannot confirm because he was never charged. So Mick met Maraid when she was a young single mother. She would describe him as her guardian angel. But then he met Lisa. And he asked Maraid if he could move her in with them. She agreed. But he she was so hurt by this. Which I oh, yeah. I cannot imagine. Yeah, understandably. But Mick didn't care. He wanted this and no one else's feelings mattered. Both women were controlled and both women were manipulated. They worked, paid the bills with their wages and the benefits, but it all went straight to Mick Philpott's account. Now, to me, this comes across as financial abuse. If you don't know what financial abuse is, I will cover this later. I, I mean, yeah, I haven't heard of it. I can kind of guess, like what it is though but yes I will give examples later they looked after the house and they also looked after the children but the women didn't even have front door keys people who were allowed in the house described Mick as a kingpin no one else mattered he basically had his own harem but the children were all well clothed and went to school regularly in 2010, he was cautioned for slapping Reed and dragging her out of the house by her hair. In 2012, he was on trial for punching a motorist in the face during a road rage incident and he pleaded guilty to common assault but denied dangerous driving. In 2012, Mick Philpott was living in the house with Maraid and Lisa, who both had children from previous relationships in the house. Maraid and Mick's five children... Lisa and Mick's four children and Mick's son from a previous relationship all in a three-bed house. So 12 children living in this house. Now, this house wasn't exactly family-friendly despite all the children. The The environment was toxic with constant arguments and there have been reports of violence, threesomes including both women and even some of Mick's friends including Paul Mosley, who 
was known as Shaky, and we will get back to. And the control we spoke of previously. Mick was not the only member of the household who was abusive, however. Mick's 14-year-old son with Heather Keogh, Mikey, who was living with a lot at the time after falling out with his mother, hadn't seen his dad for six years before moving in in January of 2011. He wasn't used to the drama and the endless fights of the house. So during an argument between Mick and Marie about her having an abortion, Mikey stuck up for his stepmother, which resulted in his dad storming out. Mikey went to his bedroom and Marie followed and told him that he should apologise to his dad because she wasn't sure the baby was even his. Marie tried comforting the teary teen. She put her arm around him and then started kissing him. And the Mirror article I got this source from says that they had sex. I would like to point out that he was 14. So Wait, she raped him. Wait, so this him. is his, like, actual mother? No, this is his stepmother. Jeez, I was about to say, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, Mikey's, Mikey's mum is Heather Keel. Okay. The 16-year-old who right. met. Okay. Yes. I see. So he fell out with his mum in 2000. And eleven, and so he went to go and live with his dad, but he hadn't seen his dad in six years. Okay. He said that she wasn't a mother figure to him, but like a friend, and he had a bit of a crush on her. But she preyed on a young and vulnerable boy, and this is just as bad as if she were a man. So, although the mirror refers to this as sex, I'm going to call it what it was: rape. She raped him 11 or 12 times in that next year, all while his dad was out. The younger children were at school, and he would even stay off school to be with her. During the time that the triple lived together, Mick was obsessed with Lisa, and Marie knew it. Never mind the fact that he'd bought a third into their relationship. He asked Marie to divorce him so he could marry Lisa, but still expect Marie to stay in the house with the kids and keep up their arrangement, but with her as a third. Sorry, who does he actually think he is? <laughs> like, what type of arrangement is this? <laughs> Can you imagine the cheek of someone going, Hi wife, you know how I've got that third? Well, I now want the third to be the second and you to go to the third? That okay with you? Like, what does he... What does he actually... I don't know. I mean... How does he expect to go that to go down well? I know. But she said no. No divorce. Lisa described her time with Mick as being trapped. So in February of 2012, Lisa left the house with her five children. She told Marie that she was taking the kids swimming. She left the house with nothing but her children, the clothes on their back, and their swimming costumes. Later that night, when she didn't come home, Mick realised she'd left him. He starts trying to manipulate her to come back. He starts with sweet talking her. But when that tactic doesn't work, he cajoled her. His last move? Bullying her. He would go between the three, trying to work out a pattern that would work for him. But she stayed strong. She'd been through this for years and she had had enough. For her and her children's sakes. But Mick couldn't cope with this rejection. He had to have her back. He had to have complete control. No one leaves Mick Philpott unscathed. 
So he comes up with a plan, but he can't do it alone. He needs his reliable wife and his trusty friend, Paul. Or as we called him earlier, Shaky. So Mick plans to pour petrol through his letterbox, set it on fire, frame Lisa for the arson, and then rescue the children from their bedrooms with an external ladder, and therefore paint himself as the hero. Funnily enough, it didn't go to plan. To get Paul to stick to the story, Mick got Maraid to perform oral sex on Paul and had a threesome. What? <laughs> I was not expecting yep. that part. <laughs> Paul, by the way, is married. Oh, oh, okay. I mean, that doesn't mm. even shock me in this situation anymore. <laughs> no, there's no shocks. <laughs> Nothing's a shock. Well, there'll be a couple more shocks, but more just disappointment and already mm. terrible people. Mm. So that night, they smoked weed got completely pissed and watched TV. They poured petrol on the hall, stood outside and set the house on fire. He meekly shouted for help, called the police saying, help me, my babies are trapped inside, while his neighbours tried to run into the house, which by the time they rang the alarm was over 500 degrees. First half of the call was all for show. Second half, is when it started to be clear, even to Mick, that things had gone slightly off the rails. And by slightly off the rails, I mean his five children were already dead upstairs. One idiot. He's fully just, like, gambled on their lives. Mm-hmm. He is such a narcissist. I was going to say, because he thinks... Nar- what, what's it called? Like, a narcissistic psychopath, you call these people. Yeah, yeah. It's... He uses their lives as pawns to get a woman back that doesn't want him and to get just it doesn't make sense so deluded when Dwayne was rushed to intensive care while he lay in that bed with severe burns all over his body a ventilator keeping him alive his stepdad the only dad he'd known who'd looked after him his whole life, had to be convinced to go and see him. When Mick knew, Dwayne was pretty much dying of his injuries. While there, Mick flirted with hospital staff. Oh my god. Mm. He He gets worse from this, by the way. Uh, I mean... Warning. Just how... (laughs) How can you drop any lower than this? <laughs> oh, I promise you, he does. <laughs> Mick was asked to formally identify his five dead children. He asked, he and Maraid asked their friends Sharon and Mick Russell, who I'm going to refer to as, Ma- as Russell to avoid any confusion. He asked them to come with them to the mortuary. Well, there, he flirted with the mortuary staff and made comments about their breasts and told them about the sexual acts he would like to do to them when his children's dead bodies were lying there in front of him. He did this thing where he would collapse and act upset and then sit up, say something inappropriate to the staff 
and then repeat. His friend Russell saw the bodies of these five little children and collapsed as an absolute mess. And Mick Philpott starts comforting him. And Russell is just sitting there, sobbing his eyes out and thinking, he's comforting me. You know, I'm I'm supposed to be comforting him. While there, Mick Philpott even called his children little shits. Which is a complete sicko. Like, I call Ronan the dog a little shit all the time. But he is alive and a dog. And don't get me wrong, he's my baby. But it's usually when he's done something wrong and isn't dead. <laughs> As children's wake, Mick and Maraid got drunk on Dark Daniels and were, let's say, very affectionate with each other. Mick sang the Elvis song, Suspicious Minds, which people at the wake were very very concerned about and we're even talking about it after the wake not only is this song choice strange but the fact he felt like he could sing and the rest of his behaviour was just really odd and not like the parent of six dead children yeah like at these things you know you'd expect him to be like struggling to even like say anything at all Mm-hmm. But he's really just like, singing. We we both have worked wakes in the bar job that we shared. Did we? We did, I promise you. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and even, so that was for like old people that, you know, it was their time and all that, which is still very sad. And their families were struggling. But this is children. They that's not their time. Mm-hmm. This is a horrible what seems at the time accident. But those that aren't so close to the family, they know nothing about this odd behaviour. So they set up a GoFundMe for the family to have fitting funerals for the six kids. You know what these five star parents did? Went shopping. Spending the GoFundMe money. Surely not. <laughs> Surely yes. Like, surely not. So they went to their neighbours, Adam, who I would like to point out, Mick later frames for the murders, or I was initially charged as murders. He tries to frame them for this arson. But before this, he goes to their house and goes, oh, mate, like my new tracksuit and Marie's like oh look at my new shoes they were 80 pounds from the GoFundMe money wait so so did they try to frame the neighbour mm-hmm. after they tried to frame Lisa and failed yes okay I was going to get to this later but it came up yeah. so I thought I'd tell you okay <laughs> um now we're just gonna flash forward for a second it took these children a year to get headstones because the parents had spent the initial GoFundMe money and they only got headstones a year later from yet again the community coming together to buy these children headstones that's ridiculous 
But let's go back to the police investigation. Um, they were going to need an airtight case to try parents for their kids' arson deaths. No one wants to convict grieving parents unless they are 100% sure that they are responsible. Mm-hmm. So police look for evidence and they don't have to look far. So remember the press conference? Well, things weren't all as they seem. During the press conference, Mick Philpott's appeared to cry, appeared being the operative word. So he doesn't actually cry, as in he makes the actions, but there's no tears. He has this tissue folded up in his hand and he holds it to his eyes, but it never crumples. So it never gets damp, Mm -hmm. but he uses it to hide his face. And he squeezes his eyes shut, trying to force tears to come, but they never do. Like, surely this is obvious that he's just trying to, like, fake that. I watched the press conference and, like, his forehead never crinkles. Like, he's just... Like, he's had Botox for the Mm. entire thing. There's no tears. The entire press conference looked really stiff. It was was odd. It was really strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But if we look at Maraid, she does appear to cry and her forehead is all crinkled and she also bites her top lip a lot, which apparently suggests that she is holding back from saying something. The entire time Mick talks, Maraid doesn't say a word, which shows his control over her. He also holds Maraid in what seems like a really controlling fashion. He like almost covers her. And the way the experts describe it is that he holds her in a way that says, you're mine. I was going to say, I find it really interesting how there are people that like study how people like stand with each other. And they can tell like what they're thinking or what what their relationship's like based on how they're posing. Yeah. I find that really cool. I like cool. body language. It's something that you don't think of and tells a mm-hmm. lot about you. Yeah. So the really interesting thing is, you know how I said he thanks everyone who helped? He doesn't actually say anything about finding the people who did this. And the assistant chief constable said, what was lacking, I think for me, was perhaps some heartfelt appeal in relation to finding the killer of his six children and proper displays of emotion and maybe anger as well. After 30 years of doing what I do, I've never seen anybody having suffered the ma- that magnitude of loss deal with it in the manner in which he dealt with it. In the Channel 5 documentary, The Philpots, five years on, people were saying, how the hell do you feel gratitude when you have five dead children and one critically injured child? I get that a lot, but there is always the argument of you have no idea how you're going to react. That's true. Like everyone deals with. Yeah, maybe these types his of way and- of getting through something would be well, I'm really thankful that everyone helped us and cared about my children. 
I'm sad that they're lost, but it means a lot to me that people cared. But mm-hmm. I also agree that if you think someone's done this, then you want to find that. You want to find that person and make sure they don't do this to someone else's children. Yeah, you'd be like desperately, you know, like exactly. seeking justice for your children. So after police noticed McPhillipot's strange behaviour at the press conference, they had a thought, hmm, Mick and Marie can't stay at home. It's a pile of ash, essentially. They're going to need a hotel. And the good thing is, with a hotel, is that when they decide to bug it, Mick and Maraid aren't the ones whose permission they have to ask for, but the hotel owners. So they bug the hotel room. Want to know what they say? Uh, yeah. I, I'm <laughs> genuinely excited for this. <laughs> Mick, what did you say then? Tell me what you said to him then. What did you say about how many times I went up the ladder? Maraid, I can't. I lost count how many times you went up the ladders. Mick, what did you say about me trying to get in? Maraid, you tried everything you could to get in. Like I said to them, I wanted to run through the flames up the stairs. Mick, was you crying when you were saying it? Maraid, not really, really bad, but I did cry. Philpott was also heard to tell his wife, make sure you stick to your story and... They're not going to find any evidence, are they? You know what I mean? Another thing they hear? Mick tells Maraid to give Paul oral the night before the press conference. He tells her to make it good. Afterwards, he tells her he's proud of her for doing it when she didn't want to. Mick, I'm proud of you because you didn't want to do it. I'm proud of you because you lied to me. Maraid, when? Mick, you said you wanted to do it and you didn't. I don't like any of that. No, that's... It's all bad. No. It's just an all... It's a very bad... It's all very bad. Something else suspicious? You know, the guy, Adam, who he went to just show off about his clothes and who he would later frame? The neighbour? Yes. Well, when... On the night before the funerals... He called them up and said, get your glad rags ready because I've asked Marie to remarry me. They haven't even buried their children. What? Why? Also, why would he... Also, he's friends with the neighbour? Mm-hmm. I was going to say, like, why Why would you randomly phone your neighbour? <laughs> Coming to the wedding! <laughs> Yeah, so he's he's friends with two of his neighbours, neighbours Mick, Russell and Adam, forgotten his second name. Okay. When police ask the Philpott's neighbours who'd been at the scene, they came across the Butler Brothers. I watched the Channel 5 documentary and the Butler Brothers, one in particular, Jamie, broke my fucking heart. Really? Uh-huh. He is... What? What? He's so emotional. like he was so upset uh-huh. about it. He is torn apart by this thing, and this documentary is five years after, and he is sitting giving this interview. His eyes so red, clearly from just having cried, and he is just torn up about this. Mm-hmm. But when they asked them, 
they find out that Mick had only made one attempt to enter the house. Jamie Butler said he would have died to save the children. One of them, if he only saved one of the children, but he had died, he said that was fine. He ran through the flames to try and save these children. When the children were brought out of the house, it was him and his brother who were with the children and their dying breaths. Mick and Maraid were over chatting to other neighbours. Mick hanging off Maraid, playing with her hair. And the Butler brothers watched those children die on the pavement outside of their house. I don't understand how any parent could not want to be with their children in their dying moments. I know. I was I was gonna say that the the way that um Jamie Butler is reacting is exactly how you would expect yeah. the parents to be reacting. Not, not neighbours. neighbours. Like like Mick couldn't squeeze out a tear at a press conference the day after and it is five years later and Jamie Butler is still crying about this. Kind of makes you wonder if when when um, Mick was planning this whole thing, if he even considered the fact that this outcome I really could don't happen, think he did. Or if he, he, or he considered it and was like, Uh, like he didn't care like yeah literally like if that had to happen then that had to happen yeah and that's probably what he thought he's like yeah I mean it would make sense as a Mm -hmm. narcissist to think if this has to happen then it's fine as long as I can get as long as someone either pays for leaving me or they come back to me so they also found petrol on Mick Maraid and Paul Mosley's clothes so Remember Paul Mosley, Shaky? Yes. Well, he told his nephew's girlfriend they had rehearsed the fire six weeks before. And he had planned to kick in the back door to save the children. But that it had all gone wrong. How do you rehearse a fire? I don't even know. (laughs) I don't know. But Like, how do you rehearse kicking down a door? Like, you can't. I don't know but this poor girl comes downstairs for like cereal or something and he's just sitting at the dining room table and he's like what would I what would you say if I told you this and she's like I'm sorry what and she doesn't go straight to police because she doesn't know what to think of this then when she sees that they've been released they've been arrested she's like oh crap he was telling the truth Oh god, she must feel really bad. Yeah, like... Like, awful. It's just... But, and then I suppose if someone says that to you, like, are you going to take... It's so, like... It's so... What's the word? Not ridiculous, but it's just so extreme that you just... It's kind of one of these things you're like, is... You'd be like, is is this someone who's going through trauma because they're now being investigated for murder they're now like his friends kids are dead blah 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 is he just crazy and wanting attention 
Or is this real? Wait. Wait, side thing. Mm -hmm. Wait, did he... Wait, so he told her this after it happened? Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought he told her this before. No, he told her this after. Oh, that's why I said that she must feel awful for not saying anything. (laughs) This Okay, that makes more sense. Okay, okay. So they found petrol on Mick, Maraid and Paul Mosley's clothes. They even found petrol in Maraid's pants. Weird? Yeah, weird. Gross. Makes you wonder how many how often people wash their hands. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. yeah. <laughs> and it was this discovery that allowed police to arrest Paul, Maraid and Mick. Another great idea from police? They bugged the policeman that picked up Maraid and Mick. What did they hear? It'll be alright. I love you. Have they got any evidence on you? They've got nothing on me. Nothing. The parents were not allowed to attend the children's funerals. And Mick's surviving children only found out on the day of the funeral that their parents wouldn't be there. Paul's wife left him after he was arrested and he bragged about the crimes on dating sites. Oh well. I I genuinely don't even expect anything else. No, they're just all awful people. (laughs) Ah. All three of them were found guilty of manslaughter. Maraid and Paul were sentenced to 17 years each and they would have to serve at least half of their sentence. Maraid was actually released at the end of last year. She served less than half of her sentence. Mick was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 15 years. The court recognised Maraid's subservience to Mick but pointed out that she had managed to say no to him before three times when he had asked for a divorce. So she is more than capable of saying no to him but she was not capable of putting her kids before him. Now, this seems like the end of the story, but Mick has been writing to his friend Mick Russell while in jail. One bit that stands out is that he says when he and Maraid get released from jail, they are going to go to their children's graves, get drunk and rape each other. What? Yes. At their children's graves? At their children's graves. That is sick like that is gross yes and rape each other how do you not even like make love no rape each other oh it's just disgusting it's the worst (laughs) he's just the fucking worst wait and he just casually tells his friend this as well oh yeah in in, like the middle of like a really (laughs) long letter and in the documentary I watched Mick Russell turns the camera and he goes Mick if you're listening Stop writing to me. It's like, oh dear. <laughs> uh, Maraid divorced Mick while in jail. She is not allowed to have other children, have contact with her family, or visit Mick in jail. She has now moved out of the area and is living under a different name. Wait, so she's not allowed to have other children. Mm-hmm. How do they enforce that? Like, how does one... 
So they can either make her get her tubes tied or if she gets pregnant again, basically social services turn up at the birth and go, we're taking this. Oh, right. Okay. Mick will not be eligible for parole until he is 70. One thing I think is very important to point out at the end of this episode is about domestic abuse. We talked a lot about coercive and controlling behaviour and I just want to make people aware of it. So domestic abuse can include but is not limited to the following. So coercive control, which is a pattern of intimidation, degradation, isolation and control with the use of threat or physical violence or sexual violence. Psychological and or emotional abuse. So some examples of emotional abuse are ignoring a partner's feelings, ridiculing or insulting a gender as a group, ridiculing or insulting valued beliefs, religion, race, heritage or class, withholding approval, appreciation or affection as punishment, continually criticising, calling names or shouting at partners, humiliating partners in private or public, refusing to socialise with people who are important to the partner, taking car keys, mobile phones or other means of communication away, regularly threatening to leave or told to leave, not allowing access to basic needs, so toiletries, medication, etc. Gaslighting, so telling someone they're crazy or their perception of reality is wrong. Abandoning someone in a dangerous place, threatening to hurt or kill family members, punishing or depriving the children when angry, threatening to kidnap the children, abusing or torturing or killing pets, harassing partners about imagined affairs, manipulating partners with lies and contradictions, destroying furniture, punching holes in walls or breaking appliances, wielding weapons in a threatening way. So there's also physical abuse, which can include non-consensual roughhousing. There's sexual abuse, which can be more than just rape. Some examples of this are birth control sabotage, reproductive coercion, so basically making someone have your child, um, using a sexual derogatory name, forcing a partner to strip, forcing a partner to become a sex worker or prostitute, accusing a partner of promiscuity, forcing a partner to watch pornography or abusive or the abusive partner having sex with others. Subjecting the partner to unwanted touching. Forcing a partner to participate in any form of unwanted sexual activity. Biting, pinching or hurting a partner with objects during sex. So the one we spoke about earlier was financial or economic abuse. Some examples of this are having all bank accounts in the abuser's name. Controlling how, when and where the money is spent. Assigning allowance which has often very small or unrealistic cost of living. Denying a partner a right to work outside the home or make any financial contribution financial contribution to the family. Controlling all or most of the finances. Misusing a partner's name for financial reasons. Forcing a partner to sign documents against their will, such as taxes, immigration papers or other important documents. Or there's also harassing and stalking and online or digital abuse. People who are being abused at home can show several signs that you may be able to notice including being withdrawn from family and friends, having marks in their body, bruises, bite marks. They're not having control over their own finances. 
they might not be allowed to leave the house, they might stop doing things they used to enjoy. Their text, social media and other communications may be monitored. If you feel like your partner is belittling you, putting you down, telling you you're worthless, if you feel pressured into sex or told that you're overreacting or this is your fault, please contact help. In Scotland, there's Scotland's Domestic Abuse and Forced Marriage Helpline. The telephone is 0800 027 1234 and their website is sdafmh.org.uk. For the rest of the UK, there's a National Domestic Abuse Helpline. So their phone number is 0808 247 and their website is the national, so national dahelpline.org.uk. If these aren't in your region, then if you Google domestic abuse helpline and what I notice on many of these websites is they have a but- they have a button to press if your abuser is nearby and if you click it, it t- quickly takes you off their page. This goes for men and women. One in four women will experience domestic abuse and one in six men. So please, no matter what your gender, please do not feel embarrassed to get help. Anyway, on that cheery, cheery note, (laughs) if you like this, like us, want to make us happy, please rate us five stars. Give us a wee review if you feel like it. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook. We might have a TikTok. We will have a TikTok. We will have a TikTok. Um, (laughs) And I will also be trying to post on Tumblr to get our names out there. Anyway, that's us for today. Bye. Bye.